the single most likely place for Trump foreign policy to turn into conflict in the next year is Iran. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington today, joined by FP columnist Rosa Brooks, senior Future of War fellow at New America, professor at Georgetown University, and author of How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything. And Ben Parker, FP's executive editor for The Web, is also with us. Calling in from Palo Alto is Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. I hope you... ER nerds are all enjoying the the first week of getting a double dose of the ER. We really appreciate your support and all the kind words we got. For those of you who are slacking and missed last week's announcement, the ER is now moving to two episodes a week, although if the Trump administration keeps up the way they're going, we may go to two episodes a day for our own therapeutic purposes. If you have ideas or comments or have a witty mug slogan, or just some pathetic plea for a mug. I really love getting these pleas. I'm your only listener in the Solomon Islands. There's nothing to drink out of here except rotten coconuts. Please send me a mug. You know, send those in. Maybe we'll send you a mug. Likely it'll break en route, but we'll keep them coming. We're at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we have the following conversation. Well, welcome back. We've been talking a lot about the Trump administration recently, and I think we've been talking a lot about the Trump administration because they're crazy and it's the biggest threat that we see to the world. But let's change the subject. Let's talk about how crazy the Trump administration is and how that will affect someplace else in the world. Recently, I've had a lot of conversations with national security types from both parties, people who've served at a very high level. There is a recurring theme, and the recurring theme based on some events of the past week is that the single most likely place for Trump foreign policy to turn into conflict in the next year is Iran. Now, not necessarily in Iran, but with Iran. And that decisions by the Trump team to embrace a raid into Yemen, embrace the war that is taking place in Yemen, put Iran, quote, on notice, essentially escalate this, which are consistent with statements by candidate Trump that if a fast boat comes up to a U.S. destroyer and flips the bird at the destroyer, he'd blow the fast boat out of the water, et cetera, et cetera, suggest that things are going to get worse, tougher, more tense in the Persian Gulf before they get better. Rosa, give me a scenario for how things might unfold there in your view. (laughs) Well, I kind of like the uh, Iranian sailor flipping the bird. That definitely sounds like something we should go to war over if it happens. But but you could see, right, how this works now where there's there's an admiral on the bridge of an aircraft carrier leading an aircraft carrier battle group, and the White House is on the line because of the way we micromanage this, and they go, Mr. President, one of those Iranians just flipped us the bird. And Donald Trump responds to that. Immediately tweets out, Trump-like, yeah. 
Right. Exactly. No, I, I think any number of things from additional Iranian missile tests to an open Iranian announcement that they regard the agreement as having been voided by the United States because of the Trump administration's resumption of targeted sanctions and then undertaking new activity in their in their nuclear program, which, of course, they would presumably say are part of developing civilian nuclear power. I think anything from the sudden spark to the slow boil could happen. We've got circumstances for both right now. I think probably the slow boil is is more likely. A slow increase in heated rhetoric and the Iranians saying, well, screw you, you know, you're, we're not part of this deal anymore because you didn't keep your end of the bargain, uh, leading to mounting tensions. You could also see uh, some kind of collision in the context of Iraq. Uh, in Syria, of course, it's a little bit more confusing because the Trump administration seems to like Bashar al-Assad just fine, as do the Iranians. So we weirdly and horrifyingly appear to currently be on the same side in Syria, albeit on opposite sides elsewhere. But yeah, you could see in any of the numerous conflicts where both the U.S. and the Iranians have a hand in something happening that could rapidly escalate things. Corey, same question. So I should say at the start that I differ from Rosa because I think we are long overdue to be a lot, to be pushing back a lot more forcefully on all of the ways outside of the Iranian nuclear agreement in which the Iranians are taking advantage of the kind of patient, cautious approach that the Obama administration took and that it sounds to me like Rose is advocating. Since the JPCOA was signed, the Iranians have done 12 missile tests, which are not a violation of the nuclear agreement, but they are a violation of the UN Security Council resolutions surrounding it. There have been 50 incidents of unsafe or unprofessional actions by the Iranians in the Persian Gulf. They've been taking dual nationals prisoner. They, the increase in arrests and executions have skyrocketed by Iran. There's lots that the Iranians are doing on the terrorism front, on destabilizing regional governments, on human rights violations domestically that we are overdue to be pushing back on. And that does not make us provocative to do so. I will quote the Trump line here and say, what, you think we're so innocent? <laughs> Wasn't he talking about Russia then? Oh, oh sorry, my bad, my bad. He loves, he loves Russia. But Corey, you know, there's an article in the American Conservative, which you probably have next to your um, <laughs> sink or something like that, which says Iran hawks take the White House. And the subhead is inspired by fringe theories about Islamic civilization. Michael Flynn is leading Trump down a dangerous path. So I do not think one has to be Michael Flynn or a fringe theorist to think the Iranians are a malevolent force and we ought to be doing more to reduce their ability to create bad outcomes for their neighbors, for the United States. And I don't think that makes us the belligerent in this framework. What do I think we should be doing? I think we should very clearly and publicly reinforce the behavior that we intend to take and that we expect of the Iranians, which is any unsafe or unprofessional actions by the Iranian Navy will be met by standard law of the sea 
responses by the United States that we will work with states in the region to restrict the activities of Iranian-backed Shia militia in their countries, that we will also work with states in the region to address legitimate concerns that Shia minorities in many of those states have. You know, we have been giving the Iranians a pass because we're so worried about their nuclear program. And we're right to be worried about their nuclear program, but it's not the only thing we should be worried about. And the the sanctioning of the IRGC that Treasury undertook, I think, is sensible. My preferred metric for successful Iran policy by the United States will be when Qusam Soleimani, the head of the IRGC, cannot sleep safely outside of Iran. And I don't think it's irresponsible to pursue that policy by a number of means. Well, I don't know what's dinging there, ladies and gentlemen, but it's the, as our it's listeners, the nuclear clock. It's the nuclear clock. At, Ticking but, down but, to but, midnight. But, but, you know, Corey <laughs> usually sounds very reasonable to me. And actually, I agree with everything that she just said. And yet when she says it, I think she's a crazy warmonger. And when I think it, I think I'm incredibly reasonable. <laughs> Well, I just wonder what the, you know, and maybe I'll throw this back at Corey. What is the goal to compel Iran to act in a more responsible way? I mean, this administration says that this is, you know, a country that is fundamentally opposed to America's interests in the region, to democracy. This sounds a lot like regime change. Or is it to box it in like North Korea? He is such a friggin' lefty. It's like, if this is the Obama line. I feel this is this is Obama radio and Sirius XM, ladies and gentlemen. Hi, welcome. It's late 2016, and we're still apologizing for Iran all the time. <laughs> but I actually also don't disagree with most of what Corey said. But Corey, I don't think that was David's question, right? I have a fair amount of confidence that in the parallel universe in which Trump did not win and therefore you were currently the undersecretary of defense for policy or something like that, and you were in charge of Iran policy, that you could take that position without insanely overreacting and escalating in a way that would spark a conflict that would end up hurting both countries, not to mention much of the rest of the world. I have very little confidence that Donald Trump would react in a thoughtful way using legal remedies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, building partnerships with allies. So I think it's a slightly different question. Even if we take everything you said and say, yes, that's right, what are the odds that with President Trump in the White House that things get much worse than they need to get, much faster than they need to get this is, a, this is a really important point. So I just want to underline it here before you respond, Corey. The point is that when you have an irrational actor as the commander in chief, sensible policies can have bad outcomes that they wouldn't have if you had a rational actor as commander in chief. And so you can make a very sensible argument that puts the irrational actor into a position to do a lot of damage. Yes, I don't disagree with that, David. But the alternative is continuation of a policy in which Iran is the main beneficiary of American hesitance to engage in the region. And I think that's a bad outcome, too. As we have so many times on this podcast... A lot of the difference between good outcomes and bad outcomes 
in our current national circumstance is whether the most intransigent, least stable people in the Trump universe, i.e. the people in the White House, are going to control American foreign policy, or whether as departments begin to be staffed up and the president ceases to be able to do things by executive order, but has to do them by the regular process of policy formation in the government and execution by departments, whether the more sensible voices of the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, the Director for National Intelligence have greater weight in the process. And and I think it's too soon to tell. Ben, I mean, it may be too, it may be too soon to tell, but here's one of the, the, the problems that we get into. You don't need a war to have a big problem. You don't you, you don't need shooting to have a big problem. And one of the scenarios that I talked to these various national security types about was we we ramp up tension. Uh, there may be a, a skirmish with a fast boat, something fairly trivial. But in order to appear strong, the president of the United States says, I'm going to send a few more ships into the Persian Gulf. And in order to respond to that, the Iranians say, we're going to move a few more ships in. And because of that and because of the heightened tensions, insurance companies say, we're not going to insure oil tankers passing through the Persian Gulf. And all of a sudden, flows of oil through the Persian Gulf slow. Um, and that this, in fact, has another effect, which is to push up the price of oil. Now, I'm not a wacky conspiracy theorist. In fact, I'm kind of anti-conspiracy theorist, every fiber of my being. But do you know who benefits if the price of oil goes up? Rex Tillerson's old company? Well, yes, but I was really thinking of the gas station that Vladimir Putin runs. Oh, that sounds like conspiracy, yeah, yeah. You know, Vladimir Putin's country is on the ropes because of low oil prices. And, you know, everybody – one of the things that people talk to me a lot about is, well, how does Trump reconcile his love of Russia and his hatred for Iran? And, and honestly, I don't think he reconciles it because I don't think he understands the connections between the two of them. But how do the Russians – I think you're giving the administration far too much credit here that this is a strategy to roil the waters in Iran to upset oil markets and thus to give a salve to their friends at the Kremlin. You, you know, I, before you accuse me of being an editor for the nation, not foreign policy. Oof. Uh, I would I, never do I that. Think I have too I, much respect for you. <laughs> You know, I, I think what you brought up is right. The, the unintended consequences of such a policy or of a ratcheting up of tensions with Iran are myriad. You've got Netanyahu coming to the White House, clearly no friend of Iran. So you're going to have two like minds huddling in the Oval Office discussing plans. But, uh, you know, I, I just don't quite understand what the administration hopes to gain we know because of the you know the joint protocol, the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, there are inspections. Iran is not working on this program. You know, they have as Rosa said, there are a similar alignments within Syria. And you know, Trump faces uh, allies in the Persian Gulf who are thrilled to welcome him, the Saudis, the the other Gulf states who are extraordinarily opposed to Iran's sort of, you know, expansionist tendencies. 
Well, they're super happy. They're super happy. Exactly. They're, 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 they're getting what they want. Well, maybe this is all a good thing, Rosa. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Right. Well, I did. You'll remember that I did actually write another inflammatory column that Ben made me write right, um, <laughs> some months back suggesting that Trump was the candidate for world peace. Finally, at last, uh, peace with Russia. Putin and Trump can co-sponsor beauty pageants. It's going to be a beautiful thing. That is beautiful. I'm getting a tear in my eye. Yeah. But, but, Corey, to go back because you actually – you know, laid out a pretty good case here. I don't have the questions that Ben had about Iran. The reality is Iran is the leading state sponsor of terror. They're trying to destabilize the Middle East. The problem with the Iran deal was not that it was a bad idea to have a deal on nukes. The problem with the Iran deal was it wasn't dealing with the principal threat from Iran and was in fact enabling that threat to get worse. And then to compound all of this, uh, the Iranians have very assiduously ratcheted things up since then with missile tests and other things that have very serious consequences. So maybe what we're seeing from Trump with regard to the policy with regard to Iran is actually sensible. And, you know, just like just like, you know, he changed his policy on the one China policy for some reason or another. You know, he was against it. And then in according to a White House press release, the White House press release, you know, said that, you know, the president of China, President Xi, asked him to change back to respect the one China. He said, OK, I'll respect the one China policy, <laughs> which is, you know, kind of fantastic. Maybe Donald Trump is coming to his senses and everything's going to be fine. Well, he's a narcissist. And the evidence suggests that if you're willing to be really nice to him, he'll agree with you, at least for the period of time in which he's actually on the phone with you. So I agree with Rosa that uh, we ought not bet any money we're not willing to lose on consistency in Trump's behavior or, or you know, a grand overarching scheme to what he's trying to do on American foreign policy. I actually think the mistake that most analysts are making, including me, is, is expecting a linear progression from our current erratic morass towards uh, traction on policies by the departments that produce better outcomes. You know, as I reflect on it, as we're, as we're thinking our way through it on the podcast together, it seems to me that the likeliest outcome is a constant ricochet, you know, a pachinko machine foreign policy by the administration where the departments are trying to inject consistency and strategic planning and connecting, you know, objectives to ends and those tables constantly being flipped over by the president doing things that in a smaller and smaller cabal in the White House that has his confidence and that knows what he is capable of unleashes. What do you think, Ben? I think that the sound that Mattis and Tillerson, you know, these are people who in private and Pentagon life uh, see the value of consistent policy. And you've got a White House that, you know, it's only three weeks in. That's fair. But is seemingly erratic walking back the, you know, from a phone call to Taiwan to walking back the one China policy, uh, you know, a, a, a diplomacy based on late night, early morning tweets does not seem to be a, a position of strength. Um, and 
I don't think, you know, Trump throughout the campaign talked about his unpredictability being a benefit. Uh, and that's fair. There is a, you know, a notion that having a strong hand and being a good bluffer can result in, you know, transactions and deals that might be beneficial to America. You know, there's a, a potentially a tough line. But so far, we're not. I, I think that the risks outweigh the potential gains. And, and certainly when it comes to Iran policy, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that Trump or the U.S. government has the ability or the desire to stop Hezbollah in Syria, to, to you know, do what is necessary to contain uh, this state. I'm looking at the Middle East and I'm seeing this situation in Iran. The other big move the White House is making, which, Ben, you mentioned ties to the news, has to do with Israel, where the president has been stunningly erratic. I have no idea where this dude is. We're going to move the embassy. We're not going to move the embassy. We, we, we don't like the settlements policy. Actually, I'm not going to say anything bad about the settlements policy. The settlements policy is fine. The only thing that seems to be clear is he wants to appear closer to the Israelis. He's going to appoint as an ambassador a maniac right-wing pro-Netanyahu, pro-settlements type uh, that his son-in-law, who, by the way, seems to be given lots of U.S. foreign policies, handling Mexico, he's handling China, he's handling Israel, is responsible for this. And he comes from a long line of right-wing Israeli you know, Zionist maniacs. Um, and and so, um, well, you know, it, let's, let's be honest about it. How do you think that's going to play out over the course of the next couple of months? Because another area where people said there could be a problem is move the embassy instant intifada 3.0, Rosa. I have no idea, David. I, I can't answer that question. Uh, it's, it's, Israeli politics seem to be not quite as unstable as American politics, but uh, uh, surprisingly close at this point. I mean, Netanyahu is <laughs> under investigation for three concurrent corruption scandals. One involved. That's nothing. That's what you get in a little country like that. We got a president that's got three corruption scandals every morning before lunch. Go on. No, I, I, so, you know. Uh, the opposition has been extraordinarily weak, and Netanyahu's coalition with the right wing has been very strong. But, you know, to say that he will be able to withstand these scandals, which have toppled how many now Israeli premiers and prime ministers, I, I, think, I think you're right, that there is some concern that it might not be as solid as, as we think. Well, okay. Corey, do you have a sense of how... Part B fits into Part A of this Middle East scenario that we're trying to build here? <laughs> so I think one of the unintended positive effects of President Obama's Middle East policies had been to so unnerve America's allies in the region that they could rely on us for support, that they began cooperating and with each other and taking initiative to solve their own problems. And I believe we begin to see the effects of that uh, on a global scale because Donald Trump's policies are in many cases an extension of the 
abandonment of America's allies in the world, alarm on their part that they need to begin to solve their own problems because the United States is becoming an unreliable security provider. That's how I think they connect. Well, you know, I have to – the Obama administration's second term attempt to to forge an Israeli peace deal, uh, this sort of mission from John Kerry and Martin Indyk seemed like an extraordinarily foolhardy plan. I mean, I, I think you're right, Corey, but this was an effort where neither side gave a damn. Neither had any real stake in the game. It sort of seemed a vanity project from the United States to try and, you know, historically – prove some sort of legacy point, make peace in the Middle East. Okay, but why is that not the description of every Trump foreign policy initiative so far? I love the way she uses the term foreign policy initiative. (laughs) You know, I mean, I saw a tweet the other day from... Right, it's ennobling the activity. It is. I I saw a tweet the other day from that wild (laughs) bomb thrower, you know, Zbigniew Brzezinski, who said, Radical. Does America even have a foreign policy? I mean, you know. I think we pretty clearly don't. But back back in the good old days of the Obama administration, we used to gang up on President Obama for his failure to have a grand strategy. But but now that seems like the good old days. Since now I, I've got, you know, we just have a kind of random tweeting strategy. Yeah, Corey, who's worse, Obama or Trump? Well, certainly comparing the first three weeks to the first three weeks. Uh, (laughs) That's not even. (laughs) Um, I would like you to I want you to compare the first three weeks of of Trump to the entire Obama administration. <laughs> Let's that assume sounds fair. that this that sounds fair. That, sounds fair. <laughs> that the remainder of the Trump administration is exactly like the first three weeks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so here, here, can I come back to Israel for just two seconds? You know, that's you oh, you're saving can't Corey. talk about anything else, can you? <laughs> Look, you know, do you even care about your own country? If you love Israel so much, go why back. Don't you move there? Why don't you move back? Sorry. Yeah, it's not my not my thing. I don't like sun. Um, so look, you know, if Trump is if if Trump is giving the green light to settlements and it imposes pain and costs and on the Palestinians, you know, it is theoretically one could imagine gaming out a scenario where that's the kind of move where the Palestinians then turn to the international community or turn to Israel and say, "Look, we can't abide this. We will do what is necessary to enforce security." And you know, with moves that the UN try to come to a negotiated settlement to prevent other excesses like this. The problem is that you know you don't have a a a state that has the sole use of or sole sanctions force in the West Bank or in Gaza. It's not a a unified government. So the likelihood that, you know, Trump saying go ahead and build settlements and the Netanyahu administration off to the races in the first three weeks, the the greater likelihood is that you have a third intifada, not that you finally, you know, you tweak and you prod and you let one side go and then it produces the conditions for a peace deal. Well, I mean, I think, you know, part of, what we need to recognize because we tend to sort of approach U.S. foreign policy like, what is this global problem? How will we solve it? Is that that's not the way it really works, is that we have a global situation. We have a dog in the fight. We determine what our dog should do. But there are other people there and then 
that produces an outcome, which is often not the outcome we sought, whether it's in Iraq or whether it's in Afghanistan, which, by the way, is going down the tubes fast, according to all reports, or whether it's in Syria or, or Libya or, or anywhere else. And, and so I think the question is, you know, the, the Middle East is a big, giant game of Jenga. And, you know, the question <laughs> is whether our moves are net neutral to the Jenga tower or, or, or whether they're somewhat more destabilizing. Corey, so, evaluate my metaphor. <laughs> well, as you know, David, I never get any contemporary cultural references unless my sister explains them to me. So I'm going to have a time lag before I can respond to your specific <laughs> Corey metaphor. is Googling Jenga right now. Corey, do you know what Google is? It's kind of <laughs> like pickup sticks, Corey, except yeah. with blocks. <laughs> Thank you, Rosa. I appreciate that. Yeah. I will say, though, that I do think one of this so administration- Google, Google, by the way, Corey, is the equivalent of your favorite newspaper, which is published by John Peter Zenger. <laughs> Thank you, David. I appreciate that. That was an 18th century reference, I think. So I, <laughs> I'm holding out for anything H.L. Mencken published. that That's my first go-to newspaper source. Yeah, I saw a great quote the other day that was something about, you know, the the flaws in America's political process were like a hair in a hot dog, <laughs> and, which, was, which was an H.L. Mencken quote, which I just <laughs> found so nauseating I haven't been able to get it out of my mind. I thought hot then. dogs were made of hair. Yeah, I thought they were made of oh, toenails oh, or something. God. Yeah. Thank you, David, <laughs> handing me the opportunity for another obscure reference that ties into the request for additional words of disapproval that you put out to the <laughs> ER nerds. Because my favorite H.L. Mencken quote of all time. Uh, this, uh, I know what's coming here. <laughs> American Congress consists of roughly one third liars, roughly two thirds scoundrels. <laughs> and roughly three-thirds, come on, some ER nerd out there, I'm not going to fill in the blank, but it's a great, great um, new word we need to work into our lexicon that basically means cowards. So, okay, ER nerds, you're being put on notice again. You know, put down, put down the box wine. You know, step off that very slow-paced treadmill that you're on, and and satisfy Corey's curiosity. Now, go on, Corey. So, to the actual point at hand, though, the what I notice in the first three weeks of the Trump administration is a a monumental inability to understand that we are not the only actor in international relations. They, they keep promulgating policies as though nobody else gets a play. And, and one of them comes from somebody who ought to know better, the cabinet secretary who runs the Department of Homeland Security, who floated the idea this past week that the United States should begin to demand uh, smartphone passwords and social media account passwords from people entering the United States. And the number of countries that would delight at making that reciprocal and forcing it on American citizens seems either never to have occurred to him 
or he is floating this ridiculous notion in order that ER nerds across the country will shout him down. Which, by the way, will have the effect of only Corey will be able to travel because she has no social media history. She doesn't know what social media is. (laughs) Beyond the fact that it seems... Uh, an assault uh, on privacy. Uh, it seemed like Secretary Kelly fundamentally doesn't understand how Twitter works, that you can just go online and find it. You do not need somebody's password to see what they are tweeting. <laughs> it's an excellent point. And on top of that, the NSA is listening to everything that everybody's doing. We have doing. that already. <laughs> this is not new information. It's But, but you know, it, it does get to a point, right? We have the information. If we want the information on these people, we can get the information on these people. Some of it's very easy. Some of it is easy for the National Security Agency. But if that's the case, then the purpose isn't actually to get the information. The purpose is to create an obstacle for people to get into the United States. Everybody's nodding here, folks. So mm-hmm. I just want you to know There's a that's, wide what, agreement. Yes, yes. that's what agreement sounds like on the ER. <laughs> Let the record reflect that <laughs> all in attendance were nodding. Yeah, everybody. And the audience was nodding off. They were, you know, we don't, we don't care about this stuff. Say something bad about Trump. Um, okay, well, what if Iran isn't the place? Although, you know, literally, we're sitting here doing this, and I have my computer out, and I'm like, following Twitter. And in the course of the this conversation, I've seen three separate articles, including a pretty good one by Kareem Sajapur, part-time trader to FP, who's written a good article for The Atlantic on the nature of, of our tensions with Iran and why it's likely to lead to war. If it's not Iran, if it's not in the Middle East, give me the next most likely place that Trump foreign policy could screw something up into a global crisis. China. I think. I mean, I think. So how does when, that? How does that I think play? when you think about places in the world where there's the highest risk of unintended rapid escalation, it seems to me that it's probably the South China Sea. Ben, I, I know. I please I, say I, please I, say Venezuela, <laughs> but go on. I th- I think North Korea. I think that you know these are countries with now with two bullies as leaders and you know it is um (laughs) they're not just bullies these guys are crazy i mean if kim jong-un and donald trump had dinner together Uh, it would be fantastic i would watch that movie movie. over and over again throw in dennis rodman throw in duterte throw in kanye west (laughs) you know you could have the annual asshole summit and it would be something you know it would be un you could never take your eyes off of it but and north north korea i think is the is the place where threats and provocations and bluster can quickly lead to something very dangerous maybe not to the you know to america but to you know shots fired into south korea that kind of thing that uh, that would be something I keep. I really on. love this idea of getting the you know these people together as a let's let's do a joint venture with the American Proctological Association, <laughs> <laughs> and let's get the SP we'll, events team. We'll on produce it. an event for the for the keynote event for the annual summit of the American Proctological Association called you know assholes from many lands. Corey, will you moderate? Oh my God, David! I so did not need that visual. I'm living <laughs> in horror here. If you think about the reaction, yeah, of- imagine an audience of a thousand guys David, and, and David, women, David, each I'm of whom are wearing one rubber glove. Oh, thank you. No, thank you. 
Yeah. I am here in Palo Alto having the reaction of women in 1950s science fiction movies. One hand <laughs> over my eyes as I trip backward up the... Um, yeah, okay. So I, I am closer to uh, Ben's reaction, although I do not think the United States is doing anything provocative with regard to North Korea. I actually think Secretary Mattis's statements when he was in South Korea, are a good example of what Tom Schelling called the signaling of commitment rather than threat. Mm -hmm. I think he did a very good, very stabilizing job. And if problems come, the weight is on North Korea. Whereas I think in the Iran case, what we are looking to do is shift a policy that has been too lax into one that more forcefully constrains Iran's freedom of action. So I still think that one's likelier to result in conflict than any other. You're all wrong. <laughs> you're all, My you're God, all, you're all <laughs> how wrong. can that be? <laughs> I, I just can't believe it because you're all so smart. Um, do you want to add it to everyone, Ben? No, I'm just trying to Guess which one I'm yeah. going to say? I'm wondering whether it's going to be Australia, Australia, or Mexico. <laughs> we are going to war with Australia. That you know, no, and it's not Mexico, although there there'll be a crisis there. But what's going on in Belarusia, Belarus? What's going on there right now? This is an open question. Yeah, is this a quiz, is this, is this a quiz Isn't question? This the part of where we have the re the listeners call yeah, in. I think we better have a listener call in because I have no idea what's going on in Russia. Um, I am Victor uh -oh. from Minsk. <laughs> where is Victor from Minsk? And we need him. Victor from Minsk is, is 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 programming the bots that are attacking Rosa. But um, uh, no, I I think what we're seeing there is a kind of dispute between the Russian government and their former pals in the Belarusian government that echoes other near abroad conflicts that they've had. And, you know, there's certainly Latvia stirring and there's more Ukraine stirring. And the person who seems most likely to want to test Trump is Putin. And so wouldn't it be one of these little border things where he goes in someplace in order just to hear Trump say the words, it's none of our business? Yeah. But, but that, the but question you asked was, was where, yeah. do you think, where do you think we're going to get conflict? Right. You know, if Putin well, I said rolled, crisis. I said crisis. Okay. But if Putin rolled tanks into— Crisis you know, for whom? Into, into Belarus, there is no chance that the Trump administration would do anything uh, to stop it. Trump would probably tweet something like— uh, Lukashenko My friend was Putin has every right to, to be concerned about security in his backyard— so who would Trump actually order military action against happily? The Iranians, for sure. The <laughs> Almost North Koreans, anybody except the Russians, The I North think. Koreans, for sure. Maybe the Chinese around some little fake island. Maybe. I mean, that would be crazy, but he might do that. But you don't think the Russians. Do you think if the Russians, you know, all of a sudden little green men started popping up in Latvia that we would actually no. honor, honor Article 5 of NATO? No, but and also remember, and we've had this discussion before. Article five is pretty squishy. In fact, uh, it 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 commits you to taking appropriate action in response, but doesn't really specify what that is. And uh, I certainly think that that without actually repudiating Article five obligations. Uh, almost any administration can find a reason not to use military force in response. Um, but no, I don't think Trump cares. I think the only way 
that Russia could get on Trump's enemy list would be if Putin stopped. Uh, if Put, you know, if Putin makes fun of him, it's all over, right? But I think Putin is savvy enough to know that he knows exactly how to handle a total narcissist. He's he's doing it brilliantly. See, I think there is another possibility. Okay, here's another one. Venezuela is going to melt down. They don't even have food in Venezuela. It is a catastrophe. It is a very big country. It already produces lots of refugees into places like Colombia. But if the situation gets really bad, those refugees will go into places like Central America and they'll go into places like Cuba. Now, the Cubans who want to come to the United States go to Central America and up through Mexico. Trump has pissed off the Mexicans. He's very likely to piss off the Cubans. A perfect play for both of them would be to allow Trump to have a big refugee crisis in his own hemisphere. Wow. That's a good one, David. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Okay, so that's another possibility. And anybody else want to add any place else that you're just sort of keeping an eye on? I don't know. I can't think of anything right off the top of my head. I actually don't think a bellicose Trump is that big a threat. Because as the China episode, I think, demonstrates, he talks belligerent, then quickly collapses. I actually think the bigger problem will be, I could see the arrow going the other direction. Namely, you have uh, infiltration of a NATO member state and NATO wanting to call in the Article 5 guarantee and Trump refusing. I actually think that's much likelier than Trump dragging European allies into a war of our making. So he is a peacemaker, is what you're saying, Corey? Uh, as long as you connect the A at the front of that, a peacemaker, not a... <laughs> Ooh, an Ooh, a peacemaker. <laughs> that's nice. That's nice. Imagine world peas. Corey, um, that's the headline of your next article. Yeah. yeah. That, thank, yeah. You for that, thank you for that. Well, you know, I think that's right. I think the place that Trump is most likely to cause massive comp like with his bellicosity, is right here at home. Uh, And I think that it is likely to produce serious tensions in the United States government of a sort we have not seen before. That's where my money would be. I think whether it's tension with the judiciary or tension within his own cabinet or tension uh, ultimately with the group that I think he is going to piss off the most and who will give him the most trouble, and that is the intelligence community, which actually knows a lot of things that he seems to be neglecting that they know, he's going he's gonna to have some, some problems at home. I also, you know, every morning I wake up and I think, could it get any worse than this? Is there going to be a ray of hope? And I sort of, you know, get on the floor, I sit down, I get into the lotus position. I imagine the Buddhist principle that we You're all... Exactly. I imagine the Buddhist principle that we're all living in a house that's on fire, which is supposed to mean, you know, temporal. this is temporary life. And I think, how do I want to live this day? What will help me get through this day? Where is the positive ray of hope? And I think, you know, there's somebody in the United States government who actually has Donald Trump's taxes. Ah. <laughs> you know, Can you imagine what – it is shocking to me that nobody has released or leaked from there. They must be locked up in the most secret room. Yeah, Steve Bannon went to the IRS one night in the middle of the night and dragged people away to a dungeon. But, 
but probably not. It's a not. slow audit. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it probably not. But there's actually a group of people who know the answer to all these questions. And sooner or later, that's not going to be a secret because that's the way Washington works. And secrets in Washington have half-lives that are shorter than those of mayflies. But, but there you go, David. This goes back to a conversation we had on a previous podcast when we were talking about what hypothetically – uh, what, what hypothetically, what kind of compromising information the Russians might have on uh, Donald Trump? And I hypothesize that it really doesn't matter because Donald Trump is unblackmailable and uncompromisable because he is shameless and he just denounces anything as fake news anyway. So it doesn't really matter what those taxes say. You, you, you're working on the optimistic assumption that that something compromising in his taxes or other parts of his life gets reported makes a difference to people, makes a difference to American politics. I think that's that's overly optimistic. No, it's not overly in, optimistic because that's not what I said. What I said was it helps me in the morning. <laughs> oh, it helps you. Okay. <laughs> it helps. It's a well, that's, I don't want to take that away from solid. you. I don't want to take that away from it you It helps me feel better to know. Rosa, <laughs> it steal his morning tranquility. <laughs> That's exactly right. That is exactly right. Well, how do you achieve tranquility in the morning, Corey? I envision the flame of enlightenment coming from Buddha's blue hair, David. Wow. I love that. I love that. Ben, <laughs> California have, is good. Have you ever achieved tranquility in Not the morning? Not even close. Do in you even know what the morning are you is? Kidding? <laughs> Isn't the morning just an extension of night? Yeah. Okay. Morning, morning is the later part of the night. <laughs> <laughs> when Rosa and I are submitting our columns for his review. Late. They're already late. <laughs> Rosa, how do you achieve enlightenment? This is how we're ending this episode. Does it have to be know. in the morning? It never happens to do me. Do you in the ever morning. achieve enlightenment? I'm in a constant state of enlightenment. You can't tell just looking at me. Rosa's listeners, Rosa is drawing perfect slow circles, doodling perfect. It's like uh, Tibetan mandalas. Yeah, I doodle. That, well, I think that'll do it. I think that I think that'll do it. Ben's <laughs> Maybe office. Maybe we should post some of. Uh, we can post some pictures of Rosa's doodles for. Well, I think ben, I, Ben's see. office, by the way, is a giant sandbox, and he makes these mandalas <laughs> out of sand art in his office. Well, every I saw day. that uh, the Thank New York you. Times's Nick Kristoff uh, sponsored a Donald Trump poetry contest. I, I think here at the ER, we should probably start having the Donald Trump doodle contest or the Donald Trump uh, means of enlightenment contest. And how would that work? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I want to weigh in and object to Ben's notion, which came up in another way in this recording as well, about a video link. I object in the strongest possible terms to any move from audio to video, and not only because I want to remain in the 19th century. And That's, in our pajamas. Uh, I thought you were going to say bathrobe. Well, we can well, move to video, and then we can have an animated version of Corey. <laughs> an avatar. <laughs> I like that. Oh, I, I so do not want to see the write-in solutions for that, folks. Yeah. <laughs> right. See, please send us your, your, your cartoon versions of Corey Shock. Do not. And you, do not. They will end up on a mug. Okay, look, enough of this frivolity. The way we know that you achieve enlightenment, listeners, is you listen to the ER. But the only way that we can provide you with that enlightenment is to actually get out into the world, make phone calls, have the shit scared out of us, and come back and tell you how frightening it all really is. And to do that, we actually have to leave our tiny studio high above DuPont Circle. So, once again... 
Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Ben. We'll all be back soon next week for another two episodes of the ER. (laughs) Bye-bye. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkopf, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.